we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. It's Christmas, Theo. It's the time of miracles, so be of good cheer. Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the center. And today we're going to be talking about part of the background, part of the reason we're actually seeing the migration crisis we're seeing at the border. Obviously, President Biden's rolling back almost all of President Trump's immigration policies is the immediate cause of this. But there are deeper, somewhat longer standing reasons that at least certain parts of the migration crisis are happening. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the Flores settlement, which people who follow this will have heard of, but even I need more fill in on what actually happened, what was the background of this. It dates back to the Clinton administration, but then there were obviously different iterations of it. And to sort of give us this tutorial on the Flores settlement, we have in studio Hart Seller, which is his pseudonym, but I don't even know what his real name is. Everybody knows him as Hart Seller. And he is a longtime federal government employee dealing with immigration issues and has significant expertise in this issue. So Hart, thanks for coming in. And if you could start just a little background on yourself, at least as much as you're able to tell us, and then we'll get into the Flores issue. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Thank you for having me this morning. I really uh, appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to, to come and talk about various aspects of immigration that I don't normally deal with on a day-to-day basis. So I guess as far as the backstory goes, I was serving in the Marine Corps, and after my contract ended, I got out, and I figured that I would just transition to, to federal employment. And like a lot of veterans, I was like, oh, I'll just become an FBI agent. Mm-hmm. And I ended up working first as a contractor, and that led me to immigration. And I ended up just staying in that field instead of going to to try to become a FBI special agent. And these days, I'm really glad about that. Right. Yeah, well, that's for sure. So give us this introduction to the Flores. Why is this important? And then how did it come about? Well, so the current context, you know, people understand the idea of children coming by themselves. You know, it's any, you know, even mainstream media will sometimes capture images of very small children alone by themselves. You might see them with like permanent marker on their arm with their a phone number they're supposed to call or, a, you know, a T-shirt with their name or, or something. And it's part of a larger problem, which is when primarily in the old days, most illegal immigration into the United States was Latinos coming right. from the primarily from the Northern Triangle. But what would happen is they would have children and they would decide that they wanted to come to the United States for a better life. But you didn't bring your child to the U.S. So you would you know, get smuggled to the U.S. And then the first thing you would do is go and get a job. And once you paid off your own smuggling debt, 
you would have some extra money to take on a new debt to have your child smuggled here. Right. So the Border Patrol has been experiencing issues, an ebb and flow, if you will, of, of unaccompanied children actually going back to the 1980s, which is the real origins of the Flores Settlement Agreement. Mm-hmm. I mean, the numbers were a lot smaller, obviously, than we're talking about now, but it was a phenomenon. Absolutely. And so I, I think as far back as the Border Patrol's records go, there's always been some instance of, of unaccompanied children. It's just seemed to get worse. During the Obama administration, we thought it was bad, but now we long for those days as uh, much, much more agreeable numbers than the ones we see now. Right. But the Flores settlement was changed or adapted, you'll get into that during the Obama administration. Absolutely. But its roots, but its roots are back in the Clinton administration. Its so roots what? actually are the Reagan administration. Okay, well, go ahead and elaborate on that. Yeah, but so to your to your earlier point, the, the Flores Agreement is... Well, just before we continue, the whole point of it is that it limits the amount of time that minors can be detained. Correct. That's the point. And so just so that we may be assuming something that listeners don't know. Oh, that is That's a- <laughs> the issue is that it makes it more difficult to do immigration enforcement when you're dealing with unaccompanied, at least supposedly unaccompanied minors. So what are the roots of it that go back, as you said, to the 80s? Well, so the, you, you actually hit on a really good point, which is the agreement itself didn't actually originate with how long you could detain children. It didn't even pertain initially to the conditions under which children were, which is what people usually think of for Flores. The origins, believe it or not, are actually family separation. Okay. So during the Reagan administration, the Border Patrol had a policy that if an unaccompanied child was apprehended, Mm -hmm. having entered the U.S. illegally, the only person that could get that child out of detention was their biological parent or legal guardian. Okay. And there were no exceptions. So if you were an illegal alien living in the United States and you had sent for your child, you would have to go present yourself at the local Border Patrol station and be subject to interrogation. And if you were not here legally, then you and your child would be put into deportation proceedings. Okay. So what happened was there was a group of children that were apprehended in roughly the same time. And so one of them, you know, obviously the the Flores Settlement Agreement is named after one of the plaintiffs, Jeanette Flores. Right. So there's a lawsuit. Correct. Yeah, right. So one of the co-plaintiffs in the case, her name was Dominga Hernandez Hernandez, and she was from El Salvador. And these are minors we're talking Correct. about, Correct. Right? Yeah, she okay. was, uh, Dominga was maybe like 15 or something. Okay. But so she was actually apprehended with her brother, Diamondus, and her brother was, was 18. Ah, okay. And so the reasons which I've never quite figured out, he was actually released from detention. He bonded out. And when he asked for his sister, they told him no. Because you're not the parent. Exactly. And he okay. explained, our parents are in El Salvador. And okay. they're not going to come and get her out. Right. And the government still wouldn't release her. So mm-hmm. that actually is the the basis for the, the Flores lawsuit uh, against Edwin Meese, the okay. then attorney general. But so the, the case ended up being less about that separation or separation of, of other unaccompanied children. Because mm-hmm. remember, you're basically keeping a child away from their parent. Right. And there are several of the plaintiff's parents were living here, 
and just outright said, I refuse to come down and claim my child. Because I'm an illegal alien. Exactly. But just to interrupt, in the case you said where the parents were in El Salvador, why not just work with the Salvadoran government and remove them to El Salvador? That's an outstanding question because <laughs> she, like, you could have gotten two for one because she came with her brother and he was right. over 18. Right, right. Okay. But so the, the way that people know the Flores lawsuit, which ended up – so the, the government litigated to a certain extent and then just decided that it was in its interest to, to settle. Mm-hmm. So that's what people know is actually the government entered into a consent agreement with a group of organizations that represented these these minor plaintiffs. So the lawsuit must have been going on for years. If it started during the Reagan administration and the settlement was during the Clinton administration. Exactly. We're yes. talking a number of at least five, six, seven years or something that it dragged on, right? Yeah, I think I wanna say nineteen ninety seven maybe was the the first Settlement portion of the settlement agreement from a 1985 case. Right. Okay. But so going back to something you had said earlier, yes, every couple years, another issue will will crop up. And it's almost like a rite of passage for an attorney general is to get sued by the groups behind the Flora settlement agreement. Interesting. So what was the original settlement agreement? What did the original agreement call for? So the the original agreement basically said that, well, to sort of tie this to, to more modern history, the Reagan era rule ended up being vacated as illegal because much like a lot of things that happened during the Trump administration, the Reagan administration failed to abide by the Administrative Procedure Act. Oh, okay. They didn't publish a notice and comment that they were going to do this to children. They just started doing it because it seemed like a good idea. Right. So that was part of the agreement was it struck that. But also the children were being subjected to things like strip searches. They were treated just like smaller Regular adults. Illegal aliens. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. And if, if listeners have ever seen the movie SWAT, the remake with Samuel L. Jackson, there's a scene where they're training at the, is it the Ambassador Hotel where RFK was assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan? Right. There's a scene where after they've done training, they're sitting around you know, the old swimming pool of the hotel, like one of them, you know, two of them were tossing a ball or something and the rest of them are catching sun. Well, the original detention centers that were privately contracted were often in places like old rundown sketchy motels. Okay. So several of these plaintiffs from the Flora Settlement Agreement were detained in, I believe, like Pomona or Pasadena in an old motel that had like a swimming pool full of fetid water and they didn't receive any education or books. They just stared at each other for 24 hours a day while they were indefinitely detained because their parents either weren't here or refused to come and get them. Okay. Interesting. So again, what did the, did the Flores settlement prohibit that? What effect did it have? So it, it lays out a couple of things. It basically creates standards for children. So now if you compare the the 1980s type of facility to what children are are detained in now there was uh during the Trump administration you had several Trump officials testifying about the treatment of unaccompanied minors and the panel was all asked would you ever allow your child to be detained in this type of facility and all of them were like well no because my children are not illegal aliens. Right. But if, if I had been in their place, I would have said, yes, I would allow my child to be detained in what is essentially 
kitty club fed. Right. You know, the uh, Washington Times once did an expose on one of these facilities, and it's like part of the Florida settlement agreement is if the child is hungry, they have to be fed until they're full and they have to receive snacks all day. But they go to school, they learn English, even though we're supposed to be, in theory, preparing them to be removed back to their country of origin. They learn the Pledge of Allegiance. They learn all the states. Yeah, I've been to a family detention center now closed that, I mean, there was food everywhere. There was uh, this. Anyway, it was really it was not it wasn't prison. Exactly. And so some of these places, you know, the children can go out to the bowling alley. They can go to museums. They can go to amusement parks. So, you know, nothing like adult detention, which itself is not not necessarily like prison. It really depends on the facility. Right. But also the Flores Settlement Agreement established a hierarchy of release. So the child can only be detained in a reasonable setting for their their age and then basically processed as quickly as possible. But so they have to be released to a parent. And if a parent's not available to a legal guardian, and it just goes down a list of people or groups that they can be released to. And then finally, if no one will take the child or the child has behavioral issues or what have you, the child can remain in a residential HHS facility for children. Right, but okay. most of them are just promptly released. And then, of course, as we're hearing with this administration, as with the last one and the one before that, they disappear. Right. So this was the original version Correct. of the Flores settlement. And it didn't deal with that many people, right? In other words, it really didn't get all that much attention because... The problem was so small. Absolutely. There were probably a couple thousand children right. a year. Right. So what's happened in the interim? Okay. So going going forward is, as I said, each attorney general basically ends up being a respondent in a, a iteration of the Flores lawsuit. During the Obama administration, for instance, the judge that oversees the agreement, and so I should I should go back and say point out that there is only one judge in the entire United States that can hear a Flores case. Interesting. And so that that current judge is a woman named Dolly G from the Central District of California. Now, she wasn't the original judge on the 90s iteration of it, right? But so that position kind of inherits the responsibility of overseeing Flores? Absolutely. So the, the judge before that name was Keeler. And he ended up passing away, I believe, in 2012. Okay. And so when she took his seat, she inherited the, the Flores Interesting. lawsuit. Okay. okay. What did she do then? So one of the things that she did was, so we're talking about unaccompanied alien children. And she, in one of the Obama-era Flores lawsuits, decided that the agreement didn't just apply to unaccompanied children. It should actually apply to accompanied children as well. Which was not in the original terms. Exactly. And right. creates a whole unintended set of consequences because actually the government's response to that was, look, you can't, you can't force us to release adults with children just because you've decided that this agreement should cover accompany children. Because that was what Dolly G ruled was right. that, you know, you have to release accompanied children and because they're accompanied, you must also release the adult. That was part of her ruling. Correct. Yeah. And didn't she make up the 20-day or 21-day She asked the government well? how long they would need to process family right. units. And the okay. government 
for whatever reason, arbitrarily picked 20 days. And so she said, bingo, that's your limit. You're not allowed to keep kids longer. And that became black letter law. Unbelievable. But it was interesting because the government immediately pushed back on her ruling about releasing adults. The Obama administration. Right. Leon Fresco, when he was an assistant attorney general, actually tried that case on behalf of the government and actually said there's a he's quoted in, I believe, the L.A. Times saying, look, if you're going to go forward with your ruling that this will apply to accompanied children, we're going to start creating unaccompanied children by separating families. In other words, where the adults on purpose would do that. Exactly. Well, you know, we've we've apprehended the adult and we refuse to release them. So Mm -hmm. we're going to start separating families. Right. Okay. And so on appeal, the Ninth Circuit, interestingly enough, actually said, no, you you can't force the government to release adults. You can find we'll agree that that you can cover accompanied children under the agreement. But, you know, the government is under no obligation to release an adult. So the Ninth Circuit accepted her made up 20 day stop clock, you know, clock on detaining children, but the government didn't have to release the adults. Correct. But it was kind of inevitable that was going to happen anyway, isn't it? You you can only do so much with 20 days. Mm-hmm. I mean, though, a lot of people are under the mistaken belief that that the aliens that are coming are all seeking asylum. But. In actuality, very few aliens that are apprehended entering illegally on average each year are looking for asylum. And that is not necessarily different whether or not they have a child in tow. Right. But so let's say that we are talking about people that are are seeking asylum. By law, an asylum case is supposed to be decided within 180 days, barring, you know, exceptional circumstances. Right. So in a separate portion of the statute, an asylum case is actually supposed to be heard within 45 days of filing the, the paperwork for it. Right. So why the government didn't opt for 45 days right. and just picked 20 instead, I, I have no idea. Interesting. Interesting. That is something that would be worth sort of looking into, except at this point, it's now, well, it's not that, well, it's quite a while ago at this point, right? I mean, Absolutely. Uh, we're talking eight years ago. Well, we still should be able to find who that was. Anyway, that's a project for future research, I guess, would be to track that person down. So the effect now is is what? That we are de facto releasing the parents with the kids anyway? Yes, to, to keep from separating families. Right, right. So, and was that policy or was that practice, rather, of releasing the parents as well that didn't just start under Biden, right? Even under Trump, they were releasing parents. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, the, the separating and releasing in itself goes back to earlier administrations as well. It's the dirty secret. You know, everybody knows that Trump separated families and caged kids. Right, right. But the, the dirty secret in government is that that happened in other administrations. I mean, here we are talking about the Reagan administration right. separating families. And then the the so-called cages were built during an earlier administration, like most likely Clinton's, because mm-hmm. where the original cages were in Arizona, border crossers were primarily young Mexican males right. that were single, both in the literal and figurative sense, right. that could be quickly processed in a matter of hours and then returned back to Mexico. So they didn't need the same type of facility that you would 
obviously need to put a woman or a woman, you know, with children into. Well, or even, I mean, you didn't want to have 15-year-old girls being locked up in the same spaces with a bunch of single male illegal aliens, obviously. So the fact is this problem has grown until 2015 when Judge Dolly G basically made up her own version of the Flores settlement. It was still, in a sense, I mean, this is a subjective decision, but it was a manageable mistake. In other words, even if it was done badly, it hadn't spun out of control. And I'm asking, is it accurate to say that after the 2015 changes that the judge made is when this issue of how do we detain unaccompanied minors or minors in general kind of spun out of control? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because you, it, it just becomes open season at that point. We used to do things like the media, multimedia campaigns in Central America about the dangers of coming to the United States and the dangers of allowing your child to come, you know, unaccompanied, but essentially monkey see, monkey do. There's no greater evidence to come to the United States than a friend or family member that does it and gets released. That's, you know, an open invitation for you to do it. So when people are like, oh, it's the cartel, it's the cartel, it doesn't matter what lie the cartel tells you to try to get you to hire them. Mm -hmm. If you see a friend or family member return to your village in shame because they got deported from the United States, you're going to be less likely to, you know, enter into an agreement with the cartel to get smuggled to the United States. But if there are no consequences, conversely, then people are just going to keep doing it. And as we see now, they're going to start doing it from a wider area than just simply the three countries of the Northern Triangle and a handful of other countries plus Mexico. Right. I mean, in a sense, the administration line of focusing on the evils of the smugglers, which are real. I mean, most of them are probably really are the scum of the earth, but they're, you know, they're saying, well, they're lying to you. Well, it seems to me one customer could in fact be suckered in by a lie from a smuggler. But Nobody else could because everybody would then find out about it. And so, in other words, the smugglers end up taking advantage of U.S. policy, not really lying, lying people into crossing illegally. But to get back to Flores specifically, so the 2015 version of it that Judge Dolly G essentially created out of whole cloth, that is what has turned a kid into kind of a golden ticket to release into the United States. Absolutely. Because I, you, you know, during the Obama administration, Obama actually saw to his credit, the dangers of not just the Florida settlement agreement, but also the trafficking victims protection reauthorization act, the TVPRA, and actually asked Congress to amend the TVPRA to strike the provision that treats children that are not Canadian or Mexican differently, and Congress didn't act on it. Interesting. Right. So, I mean, in a sense, I'm kind of yearning for the good old days of the Obama administration in uh, immigration enforcement. So now that this version of Flores, made up by a judge, has turned a child, whether it's your child or one you rented, as a way of being released into the United States, 
what can Congress do about that? Or what can anybody do about it? I mean, it's not, it's law, but it's law, you know, kind of in quotation marks in the sense that no Congress voted on it and no president signed a bill on this. They can overturn or modify this agreement, right? Yeah. So there's there's two ways out of the the pit, if you will, of of quicksand that is the Florida Settlement Agreement. The government can could theoretically withdraw from it and just say and we want to start go, the lawsuit. Again. Yeah, let's right. let's go to court. Or there is a provision, and and the Trump administration actually tried to do it. There's a provision in the agreement itself about termination for starters. There was, you know, when we're talking about things that people don't know, is the Flores Settlement Agreement, much like the Brady assault weapons ban, had a, a sunset period. It was supposed okay. to sunset, but the parties representing the, the Flores children went back and basically found a way to wiggle it to continue on then. And so then it continued on until the government basically codifies the the requirements of the settlement agreement, which the government has, in fact, since done. Okay. But also the facilities have to meet certain criteria. The detention facilities where minors are kept. Correct. They right. they basically have to be licensed and inspected. And that's the part that the government doesn't want to do. Right. Because it would lose a significant amount of flexibility in how it operates those facilities. If, you know, it suddenly has a governing body. Right. Interesting. Okay. But apart from the language of the settlement, can Congress just overturn a legal settlement like this that the executive branch entered into? I know. I'm not aware of any reason that it can't. Right. And okay. it certainly should try. I right. mean, what is the worst that's going to happen? You know, Judge G says, no, you can't do it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, was there consideration under the Trump administration of withdrawing from it and just restarting the litigation? There, there was talk of that, but it, it also did try to actually, you know, get out of the agreement by a, simply abiding by it. And all that did was result in additional lawsuits again, you know, first against Attorney General Sessions and then later against Attorney General Barr. Mm -hmm. Just at the end of the day, the, the groups that are representing the the children don't want the children detained ever at right. any point for any reason and don't seem to be bothered by the fact that the government releases them to in some cases not even virtual strangers literal ones right and doesn't follow up with them you have health and human services saying oh well once we once we vet a sponsor i'm making the sarcastic air quotes once we vet a sponsor and release the child we have no other obligation right right and this is under the provisions of the, the actual law Congress passed, the TVPRA, which kind of intersects with Flores, that unaccompanied minors have to be handed over to uh, Health and Human Services. Absolutely. Right. And the, the ones who aren't from Mexico anyway. So that Flores and this Trafficking Victims Act, TVPRA, kind of interact, if you will, to create this situation where not only is illegal immigration facilitated because you bring a kid with you, it gets you out of detention and you can send a kid over individually and the kid is, doesn't end up getting deported. But it also creates a situation you were talking about where thousands of kids just basically get lost because nobody's able to follow up with them. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole thing is that, you know, people talk about the 
whether or not we have ever had mass deportations and whether or not any future Republican administration might actually do it. But, you know, what people don't realize is that as it is, most children don't actually get deported in the first place. So according to DHS, and this was during the Obama administration, and this is a quote, UACs frequently abscond and fail to appear for their removal, which is the post-1996 term for deportation. Their removal hearings before an immigration judge with 66% of all removal orders for UACs from FY15 to FY17, and only 3.5% of unaccompanied minors apprehended are eventually moved removed from the United States. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. All the more reason that you would send your kid across the border without you because there's basically no chance they're ever going to be removed. As a final point here, and this is something that we're all taking for granted because it is built into our law, but some of the kids who are coming obviously are very young. There's no question you see it in the news. But some of them are 16, 17 years old, coming on their own. They're working age in their own countries, de facto. In other words, they're, you, of course, some of them are 22 and they're just lying about being 17. But even the ones who really are 16 and 17, would it make sense in some future, more rational way of dealing with this issue to treat, say, 16 and 17 year olds? differently, even though they're minors, but they're kind of in a gray area between being actual little kids and being adults. I think so, because the the whole thing is that, you know, while the agreement covers children, which are, you know, any any child under the age of 18, we don't prosecute illegal entries against anyone under 18. Right. So, you know, we should be able to basically create a gray area where we don't treat them the same as we're going to treat, you know, a five-year-old unaccompanied child, which we're we're seeing in really disturbingly increasing numbers. Right. But also not cutting them loose like we would an adult, which we shouldn't be doing anyway. Right. Knowing that most of them are going to fail to appear and then very few of them are ever going to actually get deported. Right, right. So this presumably is one of, or should be one of the top priority items when Congress reassesses immigration, if it ever actually passes legislation on this. Is changes to the Flores settlement agreement part of the debate going on now or the negotiations going on now over H.R. 2 in the Senate, the funding issue? I'm not specifically aware of any, but it, interestingly enough, the settlement agreement that the Biden administration has entered into with the the plaintiffs from the Miss L lawsuit. Right. Yeah. Which we have a blog post on on our site. We'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, basically makes it so the government has agreed that we won't separate families or prosecute anybody that comes with a child for an illegal entry or the illegal reentry, despite the fact that they're crimes. Right felonies in the latter case. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Or yeah. even in the former case, if it's more than once. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it really, this is one of the, it's kind of an interesting tactic by the anti-borders groups that they're using kids who really do need to be treated, especially at tender ages, differently, but they're using them as kind of a wedge to 
overturn really immigration law in general, or immigration controls in general. And that's something that I think we're going to end up having to confront head on. How do we deal with kids in a, illegal immigrant kids in a humane way that doesn't subvert the whole concept of having a border? Because that's the ultimate goal of these organizations. And I think some of that is actually going to fall back to the countries of origin because, you know, interestingly enough, during the whole Trump cages kids fiasco, what people knew vaguely was about, you know, Obama caging kids because they saw pictures, you know, right. there's photographic evidence. But the countries in the Northern Triangle were not outraged about the caging of their citizens until Trump did it. Right. They, but they were actually physically present when Obama was doing it. In other words, like their government represent consulate the, officials? The consulate officials from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras actually would show up in Arizona Two of them, I think, was every day, and one of them was like once a week Which or something. Which is appropriate because, in a sense, these are their kids. Absolutely. Right, the right. problem was that they just weren't taking them back. And that's the part that we need to do is, you know, they need to come and identify which children are theirs. Right. And then the government needs to, within 20 days, if we can't figure out how to get past it, is issue papers. You know, if right. a parent going, hearkening back to the Reagan administration, if a parent wants their child and the parent is here, they can pick them up in their country of origin. Right, right, exactly, yeah. But that would require an administration not only committed to enforcing immigration law, but committed to doing a little bit of arm twisting for some of these countries and saying, look, you need to work, play ball with us, Guatemala, in getting your own children back. And we're happy to meet you more than halfway, but you can't just blow this issue off. Seems like our uh, donated taxpayer money for foreign relations, we give you money, you know, some of that money needs to cover taking back your, taking back your kids. That's the future of your country is basically brain draining to the United States. How are, how are you going to make Guatemala great again? If, you know, Guatemalan children in, in waves are coming to the United States. Right. And staying permanently. Right. Absolutely. We'll end it there. Thank you, Heart Seller, for giving us a kind of tutorial on the background of the Flores Settlement Agreement, which is at the center or one of the issues at the center of the migration crisis we're dealing with now at the border. We're going to have some links in the show notes to some writing on this issue. Ahart, where can people follow you if they're interested in uh, following more on either this issue or sort of generally your thinking on immigration? Yeah, so um, I am fairly active as a concern poster, if you will, on on X, formerly known as Twitter, so they can follow me there at the at symbol and then 8 USC 1 2. And I actually have eight a blog. USC 12. 12. Okay. Which is what? The, that is the, the compendium of immigration laws. Right. That's the yeah. So title, that's, title, that's eight. title 8, US code, and then section 12. Okay. And, and then I have a, a blog that's called Amenables and Collaterals, which is sort of a play on types of arrests that ICE makes. Okay. And I'll, I'll have that link available on my, uh, my bio online. Right. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. So, okay. Thanks for coming in, Hart, and talking about this issue that's, it's hard to sum some of these things up in sound bites and it's even hard, hard to get it into, you know, news stories when you get the whole background of it, but it's essential to have some of this background to understand what's going on here. So, um, 
we may have you back if uh, this issue uh, blows up again, or frankly, if you get appointed to some uh, higher position of uh, responsibility in some future administration. I would love it either way. It'd be my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. And finally, just a couple of thoughts about the negotiations going on in the Senate. For those of you who follow this, there's a uh, supplemental funding bill the president submitted to Congress for money for uh, Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan. And he added into it money for supposedly border security. Uh, It's basically money for extra personnel to process illegal aliens more quickly into the United States. And so since the president inserted a border-related provision to this bill for extra funding, that actually gave the Republicans an opening to say, you know, we'll agree to this bill, but you're going to have to make some changes to policy, not just add more Border Patrol agents to wave illegal aliens into the U.S. faster, but actually change some of the policies. And the tug of war has been going on. It looks like they're not going to come to an agreement this year, basically. I mean, they're going to have to come back after New Year's and continue negotiating. And the key point, it seems to me, is this, that the president and the Democrats in Congress are okay with some of the proposals in H.R. 2, that's the House bill, the bill that the House passed, which would make a bunch of changes. They're okay with some of elements of that, which would give the president extra authorities to do a better job at enforcing the border. The reason for that is that they know the president isn't going to use those authorities because he's not using the authority he has now to actually limit illegal immigration. The, the stumbling block is that the Republicans insist on taking away some of the authority that he is now using, some of the, at least the pretenses or rationales, to release illegal immigrants into the U.S., specifically the parole authority which we've discussed earlier on this program. The center has published a good deal about the parole issue. But parole is a narrow authority to allow the president under certain specific narrow circumstances on a case-by-case basis to let an inadmissible alien into the country, to let in somebody who has no right to be here for a medical emergency, testify at a trial, that kind of thing. This president has used it on a mass basis. And the attempt to narrow that authority, to limit it, is the stumbling block because the administration and the Democrats in Congress don't want any restrictions on the president's ability to let in unlimited numbers of people who are not allowed to be here. So we'll see if they cave on that or if the Republicans cave or what happens. But that's the reason these negotiations have been going on so long, is that the issue is not giving the president more power. He's not even using the power he has now to enforce the border. It's taking away authorities that he has and is using illegally, frankly, but he's getting away with it, to let in lots of people into the U.S. who have no right to be here. And so until they come to some kind of conclusion on that, uh, one or the other side caves, because I'm not really sure how compromise is possible there, This uh, tug of war is going to keep going on and it's going to keep showing up in the news. So that's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy, but also this year of Parsing Immigration Policy, because we're off next week for Christmas. Our long-suffering producer, Brian Griffith, needs a breather. 
And we will be back the following week, the first week of the new year, with a roundup program of you know what was important in the news this year and uh, maybe what we can expect in the coming year. So until then, Merry Christmas, uh, Happy New Year, and hopefully 2024 will be better in the immigration sense than 2023 is. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, signing off.